You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Does a high school football coach have the constitutional right to say a prayer of thanks on the 50-yard line right after a game? That's the question facing the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, and a panel of judges seems skeptical that Coach Joe Kennedy was truly engaged in a personal private religious observance after games at Bremerton High School in Washington State. Here are judges Morgan Christen and Milan Smith, Jr., it's pretty clear he continued to pray October 6th with other people, with students, and we have the photos showing them all huddled around him um, with, with media, October 16th, October 23rd, and again on October 26th. So it, it, it's, I just strain to see this being a brief, personal, uh, a private prayer. Let's be truthful about this. The, the, coach, the coach didn't have a, a, a moment of silent prayer. He engaged in prayer, a Christian prayer in sight of a lot of people that he had told that was exactly what he was going to do. Isn't that the truth? It's a case that's already attracted the attention of four Supreme Court justices. Joining me is Caroline Malik Corbin, a professor at the University of Miami Law School. So, Caroline, explain the main issue that the Ninth Circuit is dealing with. So, under the current doctrine, If you are a public teacher and your speech is pursuant to your official duties, that is, if your speech is part of your job or owes its existence to your job, then it's actually considered the government speech that the government paid for, and it's not protected by the free speech clause. So the pivotal question is, which hat is the teacher wearing? when he or she speaks. Is he speaking pursuant to official duties, in which case he's wearing the government employee hat and the speech is not protected? Or is he speaking as a private citizen, in which case the speech may be protected? At least the school would be put in the position of having to offer a strong justification for forbidding him to speak. And I think because this does not fall clearly into speech of a private citizen or the speech of a teacher in front of the classroom. That is what they're struggling with. How do you characterize praying on a football field after a game by a coach? Was he speaking as a coach who has certain responsibilities and is a representative of the school, or is he speaking as a private citizen? So, Caroline, this case was before the Ninth Circuit before. 
the first time around, the Ninth Circuit seemed quite comfortable in labeling it as speech pursuant to his official duties because he was a football coach and it was a football game on the football field in front of his team and along with his team. And so those factors seem to support the argument that he was speaking in his official duties. I mean, he wouldn't even have had access to the football field had he not been there as the school's coach. At the oral arguments, Judge Kristen said that the school had offered the coach an accommodation. My understanding is that the the choice he gave the district was that the only accommodation that was going to be acceptable was on the field, under the lights, while the friends were still there. Again, based on the original Ninth Circuit decision, they pointed out that the school actually offered him the opportunity to have a private prayer by providing a private place on school grounds before and after the game where he could pray. Or if he really wanted to pray on the field, they said, well, after everyone has left and you know, the game is officially over, you could go onto the field. And so I think that would be a different situation than while everyone is still there and with everyone needing prayers on the field. Explain the school's concern that if they allowed him to continue to pray in the middle of the field surrounded by students, that the school might be accused of violating the prohibition against the state establishment of religion. And they would be very right to be concerned that they might be deemed to violate the Establishment Clause, which is the clause in the Constitution that requires separation of church and state. And the Supreme Court has been very concerned about prayers in the school context, because there's a reason why the government is not supposed to favor or endorse one religion over other religions because it would have a very detrimental effect on those who don't belong to that religion. If the school is seen as promoting Christian prayers, it may be viewed as potentially coercing students to participate in a prayer that they would rather not, which is an infringement on their own religious liberty. And it also compromises their equality. If the school is putting its stamp of approval on a message that Christians are preferred, are favored, it makes non-Christians second-class citizens in the school community. Now, the Supreme Court declined to hear Kennedy's case last year on an appeal of a preliminary injunction. But Justice Samuel Alito wrote a statement indicating concern at a suggestion that teachers can be ordered not to engage in demonstrative prayer that's visible to students. And he was joined by Justices Clarence Thomas, Brett Kavanaugh, and Neil Gorsuch. What do you think that signifies? Again, as I said, the crucial question here is how do we characterize this prayer on the field? And in characterizing it as speech of a school employee pursuant to their official duties, The Ninth Circuit came up with a rather broad view of what that includes. And the Supreme Court said it was a little worried about how broad the Ninth Circuit's view was. And they were worried, and and I think rightly so, that too broad of an understanding of when someone is speaking as a public employee might really strip free speech protections away from government employees. You shouldn't lose 
all your free speech rights the moment you enter the school and start teaching. Now, their concern seems to mostly stem from the fact that it was religious speech that was at stake. So assuming that the Ninth Circuit, again, characterizes this as government speech, not within the coach's free speech rights, does it seem likely that the Supreme Court will take the case at that point? It is fair to say that this court is particularly receptive to religious claims, particularly claims of religious discrimination. Now, they can surely resolve a case without reaching that issue, but it is definitely something that they care about, and therefore it may be that they would like to take it up. Thanks, Caroline. That's Caroline Malik Corbin of the University of Miami Law School. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common... It's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Yale no longer has the Trump administration on its case over how to deal with race in admissions and campus life. President Joe Biden's Justice Department dropped a Trump administration lawsuit accusing Yale University of discriminating against whites and Asian Americans while favoring black and Hispanic applicants for admission. Joining me is Audrey Anderson, who heads the higher education practice at Bass, Barry and Sims. Before Biden took office, remind us where Yale was with the Trump administration. What was happening? Well, last fall, the uh, Trump administration filed a lawsuit against Yale University, alleging that Yale's admissions practices um, violated federal law, um, that is Title VI, which um, prevents 
um, discrimination on the basis of race. So uh, the government had had an investigation going on against Yale for a couple of years and then rather precipitously um, ended that investigation by filing a lawsuit against Yale last fall. So um, at the point in time when we were about to change administrations, there was kind of the preliminary legal filings going on in that lawsuit. So now what happened? The Biden administration just decided to drop the whole thing? Well, the Biden administration has decided to voluntarily withdraw the lawsuit. So the lawsuit will not go forward. However, there is still an open investigation being carried out by the federal government. So the investigation that started in 2018 against Yale's admissions practices will continue. Uh, The press accounts last fall when Yale was sued, they said that they had not even finished um, giving the government all of the information the government had asked for in that investigation. So Yale will continue to provide the government with information in that investigation, and that investigation will continue in an administrative form rather than in the courts. What does it tell you that in about two weeks, the Biden administration decided to withdraw the lawsuit? Well, what it tells me is, is, is no surprise to anyone is that the Biden administration and its Justice Department agrees with the current case law uh, from the Supreme Court that says that race-conscious student admissions programs are legal as long as they're done in a narrowly tailored way. And, um, you know, as you and I have discussed before, June, the uh, Trump administration probably didn't really believe that, and their goal was probably more in line with what the goal of Students for Fair Admissions eventually is, which is to overrule that law and find that Colleges and universities are not allowed under the Constitution to consider race at all in their student admissions program. What happens now? Is the suit dropped or does someone else pick it up? No, this suit is now gone. The uh, The federal rules of civil procedure, which apply to cases filed in federal court, um, allow the party bringing a lawsuit to dismiss it voluntarily up to a certain point in the litigation. And the suit was still at that point where the party bringing the suit here, the federal government, could voluntarily dismiss it, saying, never mind, we're not going forward with it, the case is gone. So this case is now gone. Now what everybody expects to happen, and Edward Blum, who's the president of Students for Fair Admissions yesterday, said to the press would happen, is that everyone expects that Students for Fair Admissions will file its own lawsuit against Yale. They had tried to intervene in this lawsuit brought by the government. They filed a motion to intervene, probably because they were fearing exactly what happened, um, that the Biden administration, if they won the election, would dismiss the lawsuit. They had asked to intervene as a plaintiff to say, hey, we want to be part of this lawsuit, too. We've been harmed by Yale's practices. Let us be part of this lawsuit. The court denied that request, said, no, we're not going to let you be part of this lawsuit. The government can adequately represent your interests. 
So they were not allowed to intervene in the lawsuit. However, there's nothing that stops them from filing their own lawsuit against Yale and going forward with that. And they have this complaint that was filed by the Department of Justice, which gives them a very good template for what a complaint against Yale might look like. So now let's look at some of the other universities who've been sued by students for fair admission. A federal appeals court in Boston ruled in November that Harvard's race-conscious admissions policies were not discriminatory. Is that being appealed to the Supreme Court? Well, everyone expects that um, the plaintiffs who lost, students for fair admissions, lost in the Court of Appeals in the First Circuit in Harvard. So everyone expects that they will file a petition for certiorari, which is how you ask the Supreme Court to review your case. That petition is due in mid, mid-April, so the court will um, decide probably um, by the end of June whether or not it will agree to review that Harvard decision. Tell us what the strategy of Students for Fair Admissions is with its lawsuits across the country. Yes, yeah, Students for Fair Admissions, well, they bring cases challenging student admissions plans that have race as a factor in admissions and say that those plans discriminate on the basis of race. Um, Their plaintiffs uh, lately have been all Asian American students. So they say that when colleges consider race in admissions, it ends up discriminating against Asians based on race. That's what their complaints say. They always, in all of their cases, they have also included a claim that any consideration of race violates the Constitution, even though that argument is foreclosed by current law. The current Supreme Court law says that colleges may consider race in admissions if they show they have a compelling interest in considering race and that their use of race is narrowly tailored. But Students for Fair Admissions always makes an argument that, hey, we think that's wrong. We think the Supreme Court current case law is wrong. And if we ever get a chance to argue this before the Supreme Court, we're going to tell the Supreme Court that we think that's wrong and they should overturn that law. So what Students for Fair Admissions is really doing by filing cases all across the country, they are trying to improve their chances that the Supreme Court will at some point decide to review one of these lower court decisions and eventually rule um, in student prepared missions favor on that argument that the Constitution does not allow the consideration of race in higher education admissions. So we know that the Harvard case went up to the circuit court, and that's, as we discussed, uh, awaiting perhaps Supreme Court review. What about the Mm -hmm. other cases that they filed? Yeah, so um, the University of North Carolina, they filed a case against the University of North Carolina. They had a trial in that case in November. And um, the district court is waiting for the parties to file findings of fact and conclusions of law uh, later this month. And so we are then awaiting a written decision from the judge in that case. And that's just at the district court, the trial level. So it could be anywhere from, you know, three to six months 
to longer before we get a decision in that case from the trial court. And now what's happening with the Texas case, I believe? Yeah, so there's a case that's um, pending in Texas, and they are really at the very early stages of that case. I just checked, and they have a scheduling order that was just entered that has trial scheduled for September of 2022. So it's going to be a long time before there's any um, decision in that case on the merits. The, the strange thing about that case is that they are going to be doing some briefing um, in the next few months on some legal questions about whether the court should go forward with this decision at all based on the fact that just a few years ago, the courts, including the Supreme Court, reviewed the admissions process at the University of Texas, Austin, and found it to be constitutional. So they're going to do some briefing in the next few months about, hey, SFFA, do you get to litigate this all again now? Or have we already decided this? So the case might go away on those grounds within the next, you know, six months. But if that doesn't happen, then um, it will be a long time before we get a decision in that case. So looking at this as an outsider, you know, a person would say this looks like an uphill battle for students for fair admissions. Do you agree with that? No. And that's because of who's on the Supreme Court now. Um, the, you know, when I said that the case law from the Supreme Court says that colleges and universities may consider race as long as they have a compelling interest and their use of race is narrowly tailored, well, that decision is um, only, um, was only issued by five members of the court when it was last issued. And we have lost members of the Supreme Court since that decision. So whether or not the court will um, maintain that decision is very much an open question, and it depends on how Justices Kavanaugh, Coney Barrett, and Gorsuch are going to rule. And um, if you were to um, ask most lawyers who know stuff about this area of the law, I think most of us would say that we think they would probably say that the Constitution does not allow colleges and universities to use race. So then we get to that interesting question that uh, uh, Judge, then Judge Barrett, um, and then Judge Kavanaugh, now justices both, were asked their confirmation hearing about, well, what do you think about stare decisis? How How important is it to you, even if you disagree with a prior holding of the Supreme Court to stick with it because it is indeed a holding of the Supreme Court. So is it important to them that they stick with this ruling that colleges and universities may consider race in a narrowly tailored way? Or is this one of those cases where they say, actually, no, this is one where we think we have to hold true to what our best understanding of the Constitution is. So it it will end up being very interesting. Why do you think that college admissions, I mean, it's been source of contention. It's 
socially divisive. Why does it continue to be so socially divisive decades after the question's been settled by the Supreme Court? Oh, June. (laughs) It's just we've been talking about this for so many years, and it's still the same kind of controversy. I mean, compare it a little bit to abortion. Yes, I think it's heavily bound up in our nation's history and struggles with race and racial equality. And until we make progress on those fronts, we're going to continue to have um, issues with uh, how is it that we're going to determine and who gets to have access to this most important commodity that can open doors to so many places in our society. Um, But I think it's I, I think it's heavily bound up in, in our nation's history of, of race and, and racial equity. What did Obama do during his administration as far as college admissions? And do we know what the Biden administration might be doing besides this step? Is they doing anything actively? Well, the thing that we saw from the uh, Department of Education during the Obama administration is they, for example, put out guidance colleges and universities to say, hey, uh, it is consistent with the Constitution to use race in a narrowly tailored way in college admissions. And here's some ways you might do that. They put out guidance that um, was fairly read to encourage colleges and universities to be race conscious, to get more diversity in their student bodies. So you might see that kind of thing happening again in the Biden administration. When um, students file complaints saying that the affirmative action program at a particular school discriminated against them because it um, allows in um, minority students that that don't have a perfect SAT, and I, as a white student, had a perfect SAT score and I didn't get in, they're going to be less sympathetic to those complaints, and they're going to deal with them in a different way than the Trump administration dealt with them. Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Audrey. That's Audrey Anderson, who has the higher education practice at Bass Barry and Sims. That's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. You're listening to Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.